1932, in Hamburg, Germany, a new kind of publishing house came to the world. They called themselves albatross. In Japanese mythology, the albatross is often called the idiot bird, perhaps because it ignored predators on land and was easy to kill. Albatross books didn't last very long, but the idea was copied by Penguin, and the paperback book turned the world of publishing upside down. Suddenly, authors who hadn't been published could be published. Readers who couldn't afford a hardcover book could buy a paperback. The world of publishing has been through many cycles of upheaval, and it's through its biggest one right now. The podcast last week had a ton of response, and we're going to dedicate this episode to answering your questions. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'd love to hear from you. Visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, to read the show notes for this or any other episode, but also to submit your question. We'll do our best to answer it. While you're at it, visit akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O dot com, to learn all about our new workshops. Thanks for listening. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Hi, Seth. It's Amanda from Colorado. Um, my question is about publishing and page count and pricing. Some of the new things that I'm working on that I would like to ship um, are a little shorter, but not super short, um, not industry standard 60,000 words long, um, which you know seems like something that came from the old standards of publication, the print standards. And I have no intention with um, those books to do them any way but ebooks and possibly audiobooks. Um, so I just had some questions about how do you price something that's not really in the marketplace yet? So any insights that you can give around pricing for ebooks and page count um, would be fabulous. It's kind of um, a new frontier, and I'm not really sure how to broach it. Thanks. It seems like a simple question, but it's going to have a lot of depth to it. Page count. Why does page count even matter? Well, let's go back to the idea that bookstores have a finite amount of shelf space. That means they can only carry a finite number of books. So which books are, quote, good enough or important enough to get put into the bookstore? And how much risk was a book publisher willing to go through to make a book if they didn't think it would fit in the bookstore? That's why, for a hundred years or more, book publishing had very specific genres and rules about each genre. So Dr. Seuss books are a specific length, and so are most kids' books of that genre. So a thriller 
is supposed to take us X number of hours to read, not 15 minutes, not 45 hours, but somewhere in between. I picked up a book the other day and was stunned to discover it was 700 pages long. The author didn't need 700 pages to make her point, but the book ended up being 700 pages. That's bounded, pun intended, by the physics of how many pages we can even bind up. The other thing that publishers keep in mind is how much is someone willing to pay for a book? A short book might feel like it's only worth 3 or $4, but at 3 or $4, it's not worth the space it took on the shelf. It's not worth the space it took in the catalog. And so the publisher says, I won't publish any $4 books. And even though there are picture books at $50, there aren't many books in the bookstore that cost $200. Even though there are plenty of other forms of entertainment that people will happily spend $200 for. So what we ended up with is a fear-based mindset about what the boundaries are. Once we move to the Kindle, once we move to print-on-demand, once we move to you are dealing directly with the consumer, the price, the value, the length, that's all up for grabs. There is no magic length for a book because you're not selling a book You're selling the experience the reader has, the souvenir of that experience, the thing to talk about, the thing to share. So when I wrote my book, The Dip, which is, I think, 94 pages long, the publisher originally said, do you think you could make it longer? I said, if I made it longer, I would make it worse. I worked really hard to make it short. That book ended up selling two to four times as many copies as books that I've written that were twice or three times as long. There isn't a direct correlation between the length of a book and what it's worth, particularly if it's nonfiction, all of which is a way of saying that when you go to market, your competition isn't the other books. There's a reason that authors happily blurb each other's books. It's hard to imagine Tim Cook writing a blurb for an Android phone, saying if you're going to buy a phone, a smartphone, you should definitely buy this one because it's a zero-sum game. You're either buying an iPhone or an Android phone. But that's not the case with books. Authors know that books sell better in a bookstore next to other books than they sell in the drugstore next to the Kleenex. They know that blurbing each other's books isn't just the right thing to do emotionally. It's a commercially smart thing to do because we want people to read more books. So instead of spending time worrying about how long your book should be, I would have you focus on what impact are you trying to make on which part of the audience. So yes, you must still respect genre because the reader doesn't know what's in your book till after she's read it. Once you're in a genre, though, once you're clear about what this is, the book needs to be what the book needs to be. Simply do that. Hey there, Seth. This is Chip from New York City. I'm a longtime reader and fan, as well as an alumni of the marketing seminar, which uh, I should thank you for because it was an experience that quite literally changed my life. 
Um, your podcast got me thinking this week. Um, it's never been easier to be an artist, to do the work and ship it. We can write a book, sure, but we can also record an entire album at home and put it up on iTunes later that day. We can make a movie and upload it to Vimeo. We can take pictures and hang them in an online gallery on our website and so on. Um, like many of my peers, I'm embracing this unique time in history where access and distribution is virtually free. Um, but my question is about the gatekeepers, because there are still instances where they stand in the way of an artist reaching that next level. Um, there are network executives, booking managers, Broadway producers, gallery owners, and yes, even many book publishers. Um, so how should artists balance these two realities where on the one hand, you can get your work out to anyone virtually for free, but then the other where permission is still very much required? Thanks, Chip, for your well-stated question. And yes, the gatekeepers are still in the building. The thing is, the gates aren't as important as they used to be. So it's clear in so many fields now that the artist, the writer, the author, the creator can bring the work to the public without a gatekeeper. So what do gatekeepers bring to the table? They bring permission, curation. What happens is the people at Sundance or at the movie theater or at the bookstore or at the media outlet believe the gatekeeper has done some work, and so they give the product, the art, the book, the movie, more of a benefit of the doubt. They pay more attention to it. They perhaps amplify it more. But there's a cost to this. The creator goes to the agent. The agent filters it out. Then Somehow it gets to the editor. The editor adds more filtering. Then it gets to the sales force where it is filtered some more. And finally the publisher and then the media. That's a long chain of filtering. And there are certain kinds of work, certain genres, certain media, where it is still worth the journey. But more and more we are seeing that if you can create work that matters to some, build an audience, organize, lead, talk to a tribe, show up and make a ruckus, often then the gatekeepers will come find you on your terms. But again, it's the creator's choice. It's hard for me to imagine that 20 years from now, gatekeepers will be more important than they are today. So from here to there, we are in an inexorable movement toward find your own audience. But yeah, if you can get a great deal from a powerful gatekeeper who will move you forward, I think that's worth looking at. My controversial thought about this, particularly in the book world, is that what gatekeepers are doing mostly for authors is giving them structure, giving them deniability. Oh, well... Random House asked me to write this book. Oh, well, I need to go promote the book because my publisher needs me to do it. Oh, I wrote the book this way because the publisher said that's what will work. The publisher, the gatekeeper, gives you a way to not be so much on the hook. You're not going to the world and saying, I invented this, I made this, I wrote this, I published this, I want you to buy it. Instead, you are someone who was selected to be part of a system. The gatekeeper gives the creator some room to not have to own all of the ruckus that they are making in the world. I don't think that can be denied, and I don't think it's trivial. 
And if you need it, go find it. But if the gatekeeper is causing you to make compromises in the work that you want to do or the pace at which you want to do it, perhaps it makes sense to walk away. Hi, Seth. This is Dan Hines from Florida. In your latest episode entitled Publish Yourself, I started to worry that I give too much away for free. I created a 20,000-word PDF, a, a guide, that is a free gift for those who join my email list, or, or rather my permission asset. Uh, I'm building my business and want to eventually sell an online course. So am I giving away too much for free? Uh, where is the line in which I need to switch between giving away free, valuable content and having something worth selling? All right. Thank you for your thoughts and advice. Thanks, Dan. Chris Anderson wrote a book called Free, which you can find for free online, in which he argues something magical happens at the point of free. And what happens is that friction disappears, that trial is trivially easy, that ideas can spread much, much faster for free than they can for a penny. But, and it's a huge but, money adds value in many ways. One way it adds value is it enables you to pay your rent. But the other thing it does, which is huge, is that money is a story. It is a story the buyer says to him or herself. It is a story that says, this is worth it. This is worth my time and attention. In 2001 A Space Odyssey, the first half hour have no spoken words in them. I think if it were showing for free, no one would have sat through that. But because you're in the theater and you paid your money, you are committed to the journey that Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick are taking you on. And so when we think hard about how we are going to show up as a professional, at some point, we need to say to the people we seek to change, this one, this one costs money. So in your case, you've earned attention by making it free. If your work is resonating with people, you might be earning trust. If they have read your free work, taken action on it, and it has paid off for them, then the next time you show up, you will be welcome in their attention. You will be welcome to say, I made a new thing. You want to hear about it. And then in that moment when you choose to charge for it, tension will be created. Is this really worth it? Is this something I want to go forward with? And it turns out that in most spaces where intellectual property is created, charging the person who consumes it at some level either through an attention tax like advertising, but mostly by getting them to pay for it, is the best way to get their focused attention. And their focused attention earns you more trust, and so you can make more change happen. Hi, Seth. I spent the three years getting ready to write a book by blogging and podcasting and building an audience who wants to hear more from me. And I've gone on and written my first book, which is just a 30-page ebook covering the number one question I'm often asked. I gave it to my editor, which is a family member, and they looked over the first page and put more red ink on it than the pen could hold. This took all the wind out of my sails, and now I don't feel confident enough to make the edits they suggest or that the book will be good. I want this book off my plate so I can focus on the next book, but I feel completely stuck. How much should I fuss about the editing? Should I publish it knowing it can be better, but just get it done so that I can have the experience of publishing a book and moving on? Thanks, Seth. It's not easy to be an author. 
but it's not easy to be an editor either. Editing is not simply the work of correcting grammatical errors. Copy editing, a really good copy editor, can make it so that you don't make any mistakes you will regret. But a line editor, a content editor, someone who is going to create flow for the work you do, that's a craft. It's a skill. It's an art. And I would never trust a relative to do it for me because you're seeking to be a professional, engaging with people who are counting on you to operate at a high level. And just because someone is convenient and has a red pen, that doesn't mean that they're an editor. So my practical suggestion is this. Yes, you should copy edit your work. Someone who knows what an Oxford comma is should look at what you did and get it to conform to standards. You can always undo that conformation, but it is worth doing, just like it's worth tying your shoes before you leave the house for a meeting. You can find a decent copy editor by visiting the Editorial Freelancers Association job board, posting a note about what you're looking for and how much you'll pay, and I think you'll find some really competent people there. But, and it's a huge but, don't let just anybody line edit. Don't just let anybody be your developmental editor. That person needs to get inside your head. That person needs to figure out who you're trying to be. And idiosyncrasy is your friend. E.E. Cummings would not have had most of his work get through a typical copy editor. What would that capitalization stuff? That's okay. You seek to be idiosyncratic, to be different. What the author must do is be really clear about the change that they are seeking to make in the genre in which they are working. And if you can't find an editor who hears you and will work with you, then your work is never going to get out the other end. Hi, this is Mike Davis in Wiley, Texas. I wanted to make a comment, and I guess probably an implicit question, just for your thoughts. Uh, And it's probably been some time ago in a previous season, but still remains in my thought and my heart, where you talked about um, the notion of intellectual property and how we seek to possess all the things that we create and hold on to it so strongly. As I've listened to your podcasts and read your books over the years, it seems like there's a tremendous emphasis on being generous. I'm reminded somewhat of the ancient tradition of gleaning, where farmers would leave uh, grain um, or seeds or that kind of thing unpicked in the corner of the field so that the poor and destitute could have access to things that they might need. I'm thinking that it supports those who come behind us. Um, So I guess this is partly a, a compliment on your generosity as well as further thoughts on, um, does this kind of fit with your sensibilities about what it means to be generous in our society? Thanks so much for your work. And thank you, Mike, for this last question. I think you're really touching on something here, which is this. In a digital world, scarcity and abundance are flipped that it used to be there's a scarce number of books in the bookstore. I can't find the book I'm looking for. It used to be 
that if a new record came out, the record store might not have it. That finding the thing was part of the joy of consuming the work. Now, of course, everything is a click away. At the same time, the incremental cost to the creator of having one more person engage with your work is zero. This is a really big shift. Zero. Zero changes so many things about math. Because what it means is that if you feed the culture, if the culture changes because of your work, if it goes from 1,000 people to 10,000 people, things are going to get better in your view. Tim O'Reilly famously said that authors don't have a piracy problem. We have an obscurity problem. That if you can get your work to spread, then you benefit and so do the people you serve. That doesn't mean it all has to be free. But what it means is that as each of us speak up to make things better, if that is our intent, not to steal market share, not to manipulate, not to somehow corner the market and become a monopoly, but if we speak up to make things better, the cumulative effect of that work is that our culture gets better. And so we shouldn't leave the speaking up to others. Each one of us now has a keyboard, a digital pen, a microphone, a camera, and we have the chance to contribute our voice. And if we figure out how to do that in a way that is generous and accretive and forward-thinking, things get better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Go make a ruckus. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.